Good morning. Isn't it interesting how things seem to kind of flow together, work together, uh, not only in our lives, but so often even in our worship together? Uh, I know that it is something that is on our hearts and minds. It is news that has been spread uh, through social media and through text messages and other means. I thought of as David was praying about Romans 12 and verse 15. In the events that he mentioned and the part of the prayer uh, previous to uh, something he said later that will speak to the second part of that verse, I thought about things that we have to rejoice about. We have a new sister in Christ, that the kingdom of God has expanded in its truest sense. When someone is translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, And that is the greatest cause of rejoicing in the body of Christ. We also rejoice when those who have been hurting and who have been struggling uh, have been granted God's uh, goodness and mercy. And and it's amazing to see Shadona and how quickly she's recovered. And we do rejoice. It makes us smile and to be thankful. But you can hear the burden on David's heart and you can see the burden in each other's faces When we think about how difficult it is, even when one is ready, to see someone that we love who will no longer be in our midst on this side of time. You know, the book of Revelation is actually addressing a special group of people. From Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 through chapter 20, when that group is said to be reigning with Jesus Christ in a complete way, these individuals that John is referring to are those who are beheaded saints, who are under the altar, who say to God, how long? And you follow their story throughout the book of Revelation, and at one point there's a contrast statement in Revelation chapter 14, when there are those who are not serving God but are serving the devil, and it's said of them that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and it's in that context that there's a beautiful picture of those who are ready. And so I thought about that as Phil was leading that song in light of our subject this morning. Blessed are those whom the Lord finds watching. As tragic as it is to think of one who's not prepared, how beautiful it is to think of one who is. You know, when we first came here, we had the impression that those of us who have known our dear sister Brenda, in those times of health, the same impression that we have Almost all been given a ray of sunshine, someone who cares, someone who loves, someone who's interested in others. And it's because of the impact of a life that's lived that well, the statement of John in Revelation 14 and verse 13 rings so true. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors And their works do follow them. You know, there's going to be more tears that are shed. There's going to be sorrow at our loss. But as we think about that, we understand and realize the truth. That our dear sister has gained a reward because she was ready. And she leaves us an example. So that when others reflect on us, they may not be able to say the same thing. We know we have several visitors, and you may wonder why the elevated emotion today. 
It's because of a godly woman who touched so many lives and will continue to do so in so many different ways. You know, I thought about when the news came yesterday that there are times when there may be a thought of changing a subject. But I really thought in terms of this being a two-sided subject today. And I truly believe that there would be no one who would desire this sermon to be preached because of the way she lived her life. And so I want us to consider that subject today. I don't know how many of you remember February 17th, 2009, unless it was your anniversary, the day you got married, or maybe it was the day that a child or grandchild was born, but otherwise you might not remember that day unless you were one of the millions of people who got your television through antennas. And you may remember that February 17, 2009 was a designated day that you had to go from analog to digital. Commercials filled the airwaves. And it was stated that you had to get this done. In fact, Congress, mindful that sometimes we procrastinate, they extended the deadline. And so the idea was you got to get this converter box or you're going to no longer be able to watch television anymore. The remarkable thing was that when the deadline came, statistics revealed that there were 6 million people who still had not gotten ready. You know, there are deadlines that are always out in front of us, days that stand on the horizon that we've got to get prepared for. Students, their final exams, and you know that they're coming. And so much perhaps the instructor will point to, this is going to be on the test, be ready for that. You may work in an occupation where there's an annual review and you've got to be ready for that. And all of us have a deadline out in front of us every April in the middle of the month that we've got to be ready for or there may be penalties. You know, the Bible reveals to us that there is a coming day. It is a day of the Lord. And the Bible informs us about that day out of the profound concern that heaven has for us. It is a day that is described as a day that's not fixed in a certain point on the calendar. It is often described as a day which will come as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4, as Tommy read so well a moment ago, or 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 2. That day is coming, and God wants us to know about that so that we can be ready when that day comes. As we think about that day, we realize that this day is so important that God wants us to know about it because missing heaven and all of its blessings is infinitely worse, of course, than missing a favorite television show. And Congress and all the combined forces of the world cannot give us a deadline or extension. Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says, It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. It's an interesting thing to notice that the Bible indicates to us that there are days of the Lord. There are certain days fixed by God in his word. And we see that this phrase, the day of the Lord, is a phrase that is used in both the Old and the New Testament. Did you know that that phrase in its specific form is found 24 times in the Bible? And all but six of those are in the prophets. When we read about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is a day of relief. For the afflicted, and it's a day of repaying for the wicked. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says as much, and he says that he's going to come to be marveled at among those that believe on that day and to be received in great honor by those who were prepared for that day. 
But this day of the Lord is a day that is spoken of not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. You have Jesus speaking in the plural as he speaks of the coming of destruction in these particular days. But New Testament writers seem most focused on the day of the Lord that is out in front of us, that is yet to come, that is the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. And because we believe in God and we believe that the Bible is his word, we live our entire lives oriented toward our understanding that the day of the Lord is going to come. When we get to the writings of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says that in the last days, mockers will come and they're mocking, walking in their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And when they say this, it escapes their notice that the heavens that were of old existed by the word of God and the earth was made out of water and by water by which it was destroyed in the waters of the flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are being kept for fire under the day of judgment and punishment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but he is long-suffering or patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth and all the works therein shall be burned up, and seeing that all of these things are going to be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holiness and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with intense heat? There in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through verse 12, Peter is focused on the day of the Lord. And I want us in our time together this morning to make just four observations about this coming day of the Lord. Notice with me, number one, that the day of the Lord is going to be mocked by some. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, you have Peter pointing this out, that there were going to be those who were going to look at that day and they were going to see it as a day, as a joke. It was to be looked over and not to be revered. Peter's entire um, emphasis in the second epistle is on this subject, on the day of the Lord. And he wants all the recipients of that letter to be reminded of what the apostles and the prophets had said about this. And even though he said, you already know this, he says, I want you to hear about it again because we tend to forget. And I believe it's still the case today that we need to hear about this again because we can lose sight of that. Would you agree with me that we live in a time in which the day of the Lord is a day that is not held in awe and that it is not held as a day that is fixed out in front of us? And we ask ourselves, why is it that this day would be mocked? I want you to notice from what Peter says that the reasons that it was mocked then are the reasons that it is mocked today. First of all, the apostle Peter would tell us that some will mock the coming of that day because of their lusts. It is not a natural tendency on our part to want our actions to be judged and seen to be that which is not pleasing in the sight of God. 
And so Peter has already addressed this earlier in the letter in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 when he says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to deliver the unjust into the day of punishment for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, and especially those who are corrupted by their, uh, their desires and despise authority. Peter indicates to us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, that there are some who deny the coming of the day of the Lord because there are things that they want to do and they don't want to be judged, those things to be wrong. We don't want to think about the things that we do according to our flesh that are against the will of God being called into account. And so these same individuals that Peter's talking about in 2 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, are the same ones that are denying that the day of the Lord are going to come. He says this happens because they're walking after their own fleshly desires. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter chapter 2. In verse 13 he says it's because they uh, take pleasure in reveling in the daytime. Verse 13. It is an observation that there are those who do with pride under the light of day what would have been done with shame under the cover of darkness not that long ago. I believe it would be an observation that all of us could notice that there is a, a, a pride parade that's going on somewhere in our nation, in our world, just about every weekend. There are 60,000 nightclubs and bars in the United States alone. There are a nearly a thousand abortion clinics in our nation today. And it is not a natural tendency when we are indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, Ephesians 2 and verse 3, to think about those things being deemed to be that which is on the wrong side of God's ledger and for there to be eternal consequences for that. And so what Peter is pointing out is that there are some in walking after their own lust who revel in the daytime but he also says that they are individuals who are driven by their lust because they cannot cease from sin. Peter says they have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. What he is saying is that it can happen if we are led by our flesh that we find ourselves in a place where we do not want to and on some level we cannot cease from doing those things that are according to the flesh. Peter says, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. 2 Peter 2 and verse 19. Or, as Jesus would say, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. John chapter 8 and verse 34. It is possible that we can find ourselves so wrapped up in earthly desires, the desires of our body, of the flesh and of the mind, that we cannot and will not cease from doing those things. And Peter points that out. He also points out that they walk according to their lusts because they have walked in the way of Balaam. Now, Peter doesn't explain that here. But that seems to be to walk according to the flesh, according to Revelation 2 in verse 14, where Jesus says that this is as Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, idolatry and immorality. And that, by principle, is certainly something that we understand because there's a worldview that prevails that says, live in a way that feels good. If it feels good, do it. With no mind about what consequences may come. And if this, that's the mindset that's developed, the last thing that we want to think about is that there is a day of judgment with regard to those things. So Peter is saying that the day of the Lord that is coming is going to be mocked by some First, because they walk after their lust. 
But second, because of subjective experience. In verse 4, they say something that we could say. They say, we've never seen the coming day of the Lord. Why, why should we believe that it's never happened? In their case, they say, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Can't you and I say that? We've never experienced death. We don't know what it's like to be outside of time and living in a a timeless eternity. And so not being able to say, except by the eye of faith, that I believe that this is coming, it's very easy for us to mock that a day of the Lord will come because we have never, ever experienced it. Peter says this is why some are going to mock that day. But similar to that, he says a third reason would be because of complacency. Some will deny the day of the Lord is coming. They will even mock it because of complacency. This is the argument of the status quo. This is the idea that as things are, things are going to continue to be. Because I have not seen this happen, because I can look back and I can't see this, then there's no reason for me to believe that things are going to change. It's easy for us to get into a comfortable rut. And to think that not only uh, do I want things to continue as they are, but that they are going to go as they have been because that's all I know. And out of complacency, it can be easy for us to say, there is no day of the Lord. In just a moment, Peter is going to talk about the fact that the day of the Lord in front of us is not the only day of the Lord that mankind has ever known. But in every day of the Lord in Scripture, there seem to be the same three elements in play that keep people from doing anything but mocking the reality of that day. They're walking according to their lusts. Walking according to subjective experience. I've never been through a day of the Lord. And to be complacent because it hasn't been, it's not going to be. As we look at that, we see Peter telling us, I want you to notice that this day is going to come. And we can't let those three factors come. And so Jesus would point to the days of Noah. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 24 and verse 37, he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and swept them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So in the first place, Peter deals with a segment of humanity. And these are the individuals who are driven by their desires and of the flesh and of the worldview of the world that says, do what you can now, get what you can, because this is it. Peter addresses that group. But then I want you to notice second, that the apostle Peter tells us that this coming day of the Lord will have been preceded by other days of the Lord, other days of judgment. Now, what you'll notice in verse 5 and 6 is that Noah uses the flood as an example of what's going to come out in front of us. But what we remind ourselves is that after the flood came, there were other days of the Lord. And if we look through Old Testament eyes, we see how the Jews thought of the day of the Lord. They saw it as a day of hope, but also a day of doom. They saw it as a day of reward for those who had prepared themselves and who were obedient to God. And they saw it as a day of condemnation for those who had ignored God. And they had gotten to experience that, not just in Moses' day. But you think about as Joshua leads the children of Israel to possess the land of the Canaanites, 
who God was going to drive out because of their unrighteousness. For every city where the Israelites came, there was a day of the Lord. Jericho had a day of the Lord. All the cities subsequent to that faced this day of judgment. But you know, Moses uh, had them have this uh, graphic illustration when he had his, uh, the, the priests on the mountains of blessing and cursing speak of the blessings of righteousness and the cursings of disobedience. And he says, if you walk after the Canaanites, you can expect that what they receive will be also for you if you turn away from me. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 19 and 20. And sure enough, as we read our Old Testaments, because they forgot God, God had to bring about days of the Lord. And so the prophets are going to speak in most of the Old Testament about a coming day of the Lord. God's going to send prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in that, he's going to talk about a judgment that will come, a day of the Lord. And so when you think about the prophets that went to the northern kingdom, they came and they said things like Joel in Joel chapter 2 in verse 11, that it's going to be hard to endure. It's going to be a difficult day. Or you'll see him say in Joel chapter 3 and verse 15 that it's a day of cosmic cataclysm, a day when the sun and the moon go dark and the brightness of the stars will be dimmed. Or you'll see Amos speaking to the northern kingdom and saying that this day of the Lord that's coming on Israel and their impenitence is a day of doom and disaster and darkness. And the southern kingdom did not learn from Israel. And so God sent prophets to the north, I mean, the southern kingdom. And God speaks to men like Isaiah. And he says there's a day of the Lord coming on those who are mighty and willful in their sin. Just read Isaiah 13, verse 6 through 9, as he says, Behold the day of the Lord, a day of destruction from the Almighty. And he says things like that all the hands of men will go limp and the heart of every man will melt. There'll be pain and anguish. Faces will be aflame. And so as God speaks to his people, he says, If you walk in the way of the world, you can expect the same thing. But the prophets spoke of the day of the Lord as something more than that. It's interesting to me that the prophets tell us about the coming day of the Lord that was going to come on the enemies of God's people because of what they had done. God had used this to bring his people close to him, that day of the Lord in Babylon in 586 B.C. And he says, the same thing is going to come to your enemies except worse. And that's through Isaiah and Ezekiel. In Zephaniah, he says, look, God is perfectly impartial. He's fair, Zephaniah 1 and 2. Then the day of the Lord that was spoken of to the people of God was also and ultimately meant to be a day of comfort. It was not meant to be this intimidation tactic where God says, look, I'm just fed up with you. I'm letting go of you. Every time that God sent the prophets to them, it was meant to draw them back. If if it wasn't his goodness and his love and his kindness that caused them to remember him, then God says, if I have to, And I will do this. But you can read the heart of God and see that that's not what he intended. It's not what he wanted. And you can even see that in the writings of the prophets who come along and talk about these hopeful days of the Lord. Joel, in Joel chapter 3, verse 17 says, there's a future and a hope for you. And I want you to know that the Lord is God. Or what about Zechariah? Zechariah speaks of a wonderful day of the Lord. In Zechariah 12 through 14, when he says there's a coming day, in that day, and he says that phrase repeatedly, 
well over a dozen times. It's the day when Messiah will come. He's going to give his life for the sinner and he is going to through that establish his church and open up the fountain of blessings. Peter is drawing on what they knew, what they had seen in their past. Consistent with God's nature, he says, look, I want to be in covenant. I want to be in a right relationship with you. Walk with me. But then in what can so often happen in prosperity and being driven by what we can see and losing the eye of faith, we separate ourselves from God and God says, I got to get you back. What can I do? And then he says, there's a day. There's a day that's coming. And what Peter does to the audience that he writes in 2 Peter is in light of the goodness of God. You think about Noah. We talked about a preacher of righteousness. God was preaching through Noah, 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. And you think about how God, the the long-suffering of God was waiting in the days of Noah through the, it appears to be the preaching of Noah. In 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, God is saying, be ready for the day of the Lord. But then third, I want you to notice with me from 2 Peter chapter 3 concerning this coming day of the Lord that it will come on God's timeline. What Peter is saying is the fact that the Lord has not come is not an indication that the promise is any less certain. It is going to come. You need to understand that this delay is not a matter of cancellation. It's a matter of consolation. In other words, God's not saying, well, never mind, I'm not going to do this. He's saying, I haven't done it yet. And I want you to know that in order to comfort you, in order to help you to understand why it hasn't come. And so what is the day of the coming day of the Lord? It's on God's timetable. What does it indicate? It indicates that it's a time of reservation. Do you notice what Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 7? He's reserving the present heavens and earth for the coming day of the Lord. He's holding on to it. You know, Paul says in Colossians how he holds the world together. He sustains it all. God is holding back because of what Peter's saying in this particular statement. The coming day of the Lord has not come because of God's deliberation. In verse 8. He says, I want you to keep in mind that God has a different timeline. In fact, that's the wrong word to use. God doesn't have a timeline. That you can't measure time. You don't think about time like God does. God gave us time. Man, we need time. We live with time management. We live life by the clock and by the calendar. We have our lives planned and our years planned. But God is saying, look, don't worry about the fact that time continues to go. I mean, we understand that on some small level, don't we? It, it is something that amazes me that our oldest today is 29 years old. I mean, as, as young as I look and feel, I can't believe that three decades have gone by. It was just yesterday when it happened. Time goes so quickly. But you think about a God who is not bound by time at all, who has the day fixed according to Jesus in Matthew 24 and verse 36. Of that day and that hour knows no one, not the angels or the son, but the father alone. And then he goes and gives us five parables about how to be prepared for it. Or you have the preaching career of Paul who says, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man who he has ordained, whereof he's given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. God is not going to be pushed into doing something except on his timeline. God's deliberating, he's considering. And he has it all under control. 
He knows when. But that deliberation that Peter spoke of 2,000 years ago and that's still going on today ought to serve as an encouragement to us. As we live faithfully to keep doing so, if we're not ready, to get ready. But the coming day of the Lord is also a matter of God's toleration. Why hasn't Christ returned? There are people who are seriously considering obeying the gospel. There are people whose spouses and whose parents and whose children are currently in the far country of sin, but they're thinking about coming back home to the Father's house. There are people out there who are searching for truth, but nobody's taught them the gospel yet. Matthew 7 and verse 7, they're seeking and they want to find. And yet, as we think about this, we understand that there's going to come a time when the patience has ended, when the timeline has ended, and there'll be no more time. And we don't know when that is. But there's one thing we cannot overlook, is that God wants as many as will to come. He wants repentance. He wants retrieval. He wants return from all who are willing to do so. And so he holds it out in his toleration. He is able to overlook things that you and I would have a very difficult uh, difficulty in overlooking were we God if we could even imagine. And God in his great patience is saying, I know that the majority are not going to respond favorably. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. But the cross is proof positive that as many as will, I want them back. How sad that anyone would live with everlasting regret that they tried to live life on their terms and not on God's timetable. And so Peter, as he speaks, indicates that this coming day of the Lord will come on the Lord's timetable. He's got it all under control. He knows there's been no detours, there's been no cancellations. But finally, will you observe with me that the day of the Lord will come and we must be ready. That's the closing argument in this particular paragraph in verse 10 through verse 12. I don't know. I have to tell you, I'm not as versed on the metaverse. I'm, I'm not really plugged into the virtual reality scene. But what I understand is that virtual reality is much more accessible and affordable, and it's getting to be more so all the time. But those who are already conducting studies on that are saying that it's very easy to get a distorted sense of reality through this. That you become, now this is not my term, they say that there's a brainwashing effect that's much more ready with those in the virtual reality world than those maybe not engaged in that. But it's just a continuation, isn't it? I mean, you think about what's been going on for decades through media and entertainment. I mean, back in the day, we called it special effects or even CGI, where you can present and project things as real that we know are not real and cannot be real. But we lose our sense of that. And so it can be very difficult with that kind of distortion of reality for us to understand there's an ultimate reality. And that is that our Lord's going to bring it all to an end. And it's hard for us to get marveling at that because of how we've distorted reality. But what Peter is saying is that this day is coming. It's real, and you need to be ready for it. You know, I don't know how many of you ever came across David Roper's uh, tract or his sermon, The Day Christ Came Again. I remembered as a little boy, it, and, uh, and as you watched that, and I even think there was an audio, video version of that, 
And, and in that sermon, in that tract, he tells in a very fine fashion the story of George Jones, a milkman whose wife and children were Christians. And he was thinking about that, but he had been putting it off. And the day of the Lord came and he realized only too late. He wasn't ready. And there were four very powerful conclusions that Brother Roper drew at the end of that tract and that sermon. He says, number one, Christ is coming. Number two, Christ could come today. Number three, when Christ comes, everybody will know it. Number four, when Christ comes, everybody will know exactly where they stand. You know, the Bible speaks in terms of that day of the Lord coming as the thief in the night. It will come without warning. And yet the warning has been given in his word. We have it. We can read about it. But on that day, everything's going to be going on as normal. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37 through 39? And what about in that parable where Jesus speaks of that wicked slave who uh, thought my master's not coming for a long time and so he began to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards and his, the master of that slave came at a, a day that he did not know at an hour that he did not think and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is saying the day is coming. And what will we hear on the day of the Lord? There will be a shout. There'll be the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Paul says it is the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 52. And what will we see on that day? We will see the dead in Christ as they rise first. And uh, Revelation 1 and verse 7 says every eye is going to see him. And what will we experience on that day? Well, if we have died before that day comes, then what we're going to experience is that we are going to rise from the dead. The Bible tells us in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth to one resurrection or another. And that we're all going to be changed. These bodies are going to be changed into an eternal state. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and 52. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And then we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. And as we appear, our Lord is going to place us on one side or the other. He's going to place us on his right side or his left side. Matthew 25, verse 31 through 33. And he is going to judge us according to the word which he has spoken. John 12 and verse 48. He's also going to judge us according to the record of our lives. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12. And as we stand before him, he's going to say one of two things. Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And please don't forget, that's all that he wishes he could say to everyone present on that day. But to most he will say, Depart from me. Why? Because the day of the Lord was coming. They had not gone and gotten ready. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment. But the righteous into life eternal. Amos said, For what purpose shall the day of the Lord be to you? Darkness or light? We cannot... Miss the fact 
that every word that God says about the day of the Lord is because he wants us forearmed and forewarned. He wants us ready for that day. And I believe in his providence, he gives us examples like we talked about at the beginning of this lesson. To see it's not a big, spooky, scary thing. It's something that we should embrace and long for. It's why we live our lives. Because that day is coming. You know, I'm sure I I repeat myself more than I want to. But I remember going with my dad as he did Jewel Miller film strips. And there's so many things I remember about that. I remember the example of my dad as a soul winner. I remember remember faces of people who sat in those studies. Some of them decided to obey the gospel. Some of them didn't. And not as a bad thing. But I remember the song they sang, I think, in every one of those episodes. There's a great day coming. A great day coming by and by. When the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. There's a bright day coming. A bright day coming by and by. But its brightness shall only come to them that love the Lord. There's a sad day coming. A sad day coming by and by. When the sinner shall hear his doom. Depart, I know you not. Are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? You know God wants nothing more. If you are, keep walking in the light and encourage those around you. If it happens to be that you're not and you need to respond to this invitation, won't you right now as we stand and sing?